read out of um, the first epistle of John, uh, the chapter one. It's only 10 verses. We could read the 10 verses. First epistle of John, chapter one. <clears throat> That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's the entire chapter there. want to actually give some context here uh, quickly. And as we are reading, maybe some things jumped out at you. First of all, we know that John is the author here of the Epistle of John. He's written the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he was the one that recorded the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he's written quite a, quite a bit in the New Testament. And so... Um, he has, this is later in his years, most likely, uh, later on in his life, and he's seen a lot in his life. He's been through a lot in his life, and he also sees this, this false teachers that are coming in and trying to infiltrate the believers. This isn't written to any specific church, it's just written to believers, and the letters uh, passed around, much like we are reading it in many different churches around the world, and we are encouraged by it, and we are, we are warned uh, by the Word of God as well. And so, in this particular, um, actually I would say actually in, in all of John, the first John, really if we were to go through those five chapters, we see the point that he's really bringing across is um, the marks of a believer. And some titles say that, marks of a Christian or marks of a believer. You know, you, you use this as a mirror and you, say, and you, you look at it and you say, how does this compare to my life? You know, how do I compare to what John is talking about here? And do I, can I overcome sin or... Or am I walking in darkness and walking in sin? And, um, you know, do I love my brother? Am I, do I love the things of the world? Do I believe that Jesus Christ did come in the flesh? I believe the fourth chapter talks about that, about being discerning. You know, do we really believe that Jesus came actually in the flesh? Or we don't really believe that. John calls him Antichrist, that so you have the spirit of Antichrist. And so it's a mirror that we look at. And at that time, they had a lot of issues with uh, some false doctrine and false uh, teachers, um, and some of the doctrines that, that were being taught was Gnosticism, I believe I pronounced that correctly, thank you, um, and uh, there was, um, there was uh, Docetism and Asceticism, and so these three were very, very um, uh, t 
tied with each other. And basically, if we were to take all three and, and instead of going through each one, um, it was the idea that Jesus never really did come in the flesh, uh, that they were two separate things. Um, it was that, um, that knowledge is more important than truth, and only a few that were um, enlightened understood deeper parts of the Bible. I would say much like maybe the Mormon church. They have different levels of knowledge that is, that is revealed. And so you can see where that can get confusing. We use the word of God as the absolute truth and we stand before God one day. We have the word and we say, this is what you left us and this is where we made decisions and this is the way we pastored a church. This is the way I witnessed to my friends because we have this with us. You know, th that, is, that is actually a sure foundation. That is very comforting. But when we start throwing our, in, our own interpretations and our own knowledge and think there are some keys that have to be unlocked, it's very dangerous. And that's what these, uh, these people were doing. So the, um, they were separating the two. Uh, they were saying that, you know, anything that, any matter is evil and only spirit is good. So Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Or docetism was that it, it appeared, it's a Greek word for appear to be. So Jesus appeared to be coming in the flesh, but he really didn't come in the flesh. And we know that is like... Uh, the Muslim faith, where they believe that Jesus Christ was a very important prophet, probably the, the highest ranking prophet, um, but he faked his death or somebody switched out his body before he died uh, because they can't attribute any deity to him. Uh, they don't want to. And so uh, Doceatism was that, that it appeared to be. And it's interesting because when we go through these verses, and we will in a few minutes, we see why John is talking about certain things here. And then the uh, ascetism basically was that, um, that there is no consequence. That because, the, because flesh and the spirit is two different things and the soul is, it doesn't really matter what you do in the flesh. They're separated anyways. And so go ahead. Sin all you want. It really doesn't affect your life. You could still be a Christian. That's what they were saying. And that was a false doctrine. And so John now has to attack this. And, and, and you see that in the first few verses. And that's what we'll do. We'll go through these verses and uh, really uh, try to break this down a little bit. Verse 1, that which, we that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. What beginning is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, first of all, the beginning that they were taught through the scriptures, but the beginning of the, the Christ's mission on this earth, what they heard, what they saw, Right from the beginning, from, from being Christ's disciples, they were absorbing, they were, they were remembering these things. And although it was written maybe decades later, if we were to ask Brother Eckerd, uh, uh, does he remember, you know, things from 30 years ago, something that was very dramatic, you know, either a death in the family or tragic or a miracle, well, he would be able to tell in very clear uh, description of what had happened. Those things are imprinted in your mind. But this was even much more because it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Bible actually speaks about that in the Gospels. That it was a spirit that revealed and reminded them exactly what had taken place. And so John is writing this. He's saying, listen, we heard, we saw, we've seen with our own eyes, we looked upon, we handled. He says the word of life. Just now, I mean, the young kids here, you young kids, you know what's happening in schools. You hear from your friends and teenagers. People deny Christ. They always want evidence. Oh, if I can only see this, if I can only see that, maybe I would believe. 
These were eyewitnesses to what had happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a story that we hear in Sunday school and maybe all our life we've been churched and we think this is something that my parents believe. These were factual. There are eyewitnesses. I believe Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, speaks in the first century, speaks about Jesus Christ. He says, this man, if you can even call him a man, the things that took place was just amazing. And so these, John is writing this and he's saying, listen, we have seen, we have touched. Why touched? Because he wants, us, he wants to really emphasize that Jesus did come in the flesh. He wasn't just a spirit. When Peter was put in prison, Acts 4, 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right, remember when they were questioning him, you know, why are you preaching? We told you don't preach no more. Don't speak these things. And they were brought to the higher authority. And Peter answers and he says, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have heard. Again, they were eyewitnesses to what happened. And if it cost them their life, they were willing to die for it. Why? Because it was real. It was real. Second Peter 1.6, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom, in whom I am well pleased. Remember, there were the disciples that saw also him on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was ingrained in their mind. They would never be able to forget that. In Luke 24, 39, See, Jesus saying, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus Christ was fully God, yet he was fully man. Even after his resurrection, I believe, he asked to eat. He was hungry. A spirit does not eat, nor is he hungry. When prior to his resurrection, we know that Jesus fed those that were hungry, and there was meals taking place. And so he was fully human. <clears throat> the end of that first verse says, uh, of, of chapter 1, verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. The word of life, what is that and who is it? It's not just a what, it's a who. The word of life was the gospel, is the gospel, but the word of life was Jesus Christ and is Jesus Christ. It says in verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of man. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. In means positionally. In Christ was life. Jesus Christ was eternal. He was the Word. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, come, no man, or no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, when we think of this, that Jesus is life, and, and actually... We jumped already to verse 4, but we're going to get back into verse 2. He is eternal. Jesus says in John, I am the resurrection. You know, Jesus is eternal. I don't want to say he was eternal. Because Jesus is still alive right now, right? He is eternal. 
He is the resurrection. And when, when, you know, when you think of this, and this might oversimplify it, but it, when I think of, you know, he is the resurrection, I think of someone who's trying to buy a house. And they go to the bank and they want to try to grab a mortgage. And they're really talking to the bank and they're saying, listen, I need to get a mortgage. The guy's like, don't worry, you got it. He's like, no, like, I really need to make sure I'm waiving my condition. I'm going to buy this house. And the guy's like, you got it. But, you know, you still don't really trust the guy because someone hired, the one that signs off, you know, they might say no. But it's as if the mortgage broker says, hey, I am the bank. And if I say you got it, you got it. And that's what it is. Jesus Christ is life. He is eternal. First John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is the true. And, and we are in him who is true. And his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Again, why is this important? I think it's important because I think even today, even among Christianity, the deity of Christ is being challenged. Maybe we have doubt. And it's okay to say that we don't understand. We don't understand a lot of things in the Bible. If we can understand who God really is in its fullness, then either God is very small or we are very proud and arrogant to say that we fully understand God. The Bible says that no man knows the mind of the Lord. His ways are way higher. It's okay to say that we don't understand, but we believe because the Bible says it. In verse 2 of 1 John says, for the, life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it. Think of this. Life was manifested. How was life manifested? Through Jesus Christ, life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. The same writer, and I think we use this a lot when we're talking about the deity of Christ, we go to the Gospel of John, that same writer, when it talks about um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, in John chapter 1, the gospel, 1.14, when it talked about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. So that Word, the eternal life, manifests himself through Jesus Christ, and is manifested, and we have Jesus Christ. And the Word is manifested in verse 14, and who was that? And we beheld his glory. It was Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. You see, Jesus Christ had no beginning and no end. He is eternal. And he is the one that we worship, and he is the one that we will have to give an account to on Judgment Day for those that have not surrendered life to Christ. So when our friends in school, when our coworkers, when sometimes um, family members, whatever it is, try to say, well, Jesus did not exist, or he was not who he says he was, we have something that has proven the test of times we know who Jesus was and that he is eternal and who he is. He is our Savior. And only someone eternal can give us eternal life, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard and declare unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard declare unto you that ye may also have fellowship. What was the purpose? Why were they declaring this truth? Why were they declaring this gospel? Why were they declaring this message? Well, the ultimate goal is that we, they would have fellowship. That we would have fellowship with one another. And that fellowship is more than just we have our denomination. It's more than just a denomination. 
It is the fellowship that we have, the partnership or the unity, the covenant that we have that Christ made with us. I will make a new covenant, I believe Jeremiah 33 says. And so we have that fellowship with him. And this is John's purpose for writing to these believers that were scattered around, perhaps um, maybe some persecution or just for whatever reason they were uh, around in different places. And this whole idea was to encourage them that they would have this fellowship. And so I think it's important that we would also remember our fellowship, as much as our church is so beautiful and we have a, a lot of beautiful things, and I'm so thankful that we were born and raised in this uh, church and this denomination. I could have been born and raised a, a different faith or maybe to uh, atheistic parents. I'm so thankful that we have this. But my identity is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And the reason we have this fellowship as a church is because we have fellowship with Christ. That is the principle. It is the fellowship with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of what? His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 4 of 1 John. And these things write unto you that your joy may be full. Again, why is John writing these things? Why is he writing this? Because he has a passion. He, you know, we know if we were to go through this, these few chapters, he calls them my little children. He's, he's like a father speaking to little children. These aren't Maybe some were young, because um, he does mention youth in here as well. Maybe some younger believers, but he, he's, he's treating these, these, uh, these believers as children, his own children. And he wants to encourage them, and he wants to write to them that they're why, that their joy may be filled and full. And I want you to know, again, for the young ones here, it's nice to see the young ones sitting in the front bench. I love it. And I actually like that it's kind of a smaller crowd at church because it's kind of a little more personal. Even in our church, when it gets a little smaller, it's okay, it's nice, it's personal. But um, your preachers or the preacher, the, the, the preacher, they don't preach here because, uh, we don't preach here because we feel like, ah, yeah, I don't feel like doing this at all. And we are, hopefully we're passionate, we love, but we love you. We want, to see you. we want to see that your joy is full. And Ronnie actually, my brother Ronnie had a sermon today um, in Philippians, just about how Paul was, was writing and rejoicing, and he's constantly talking about rejoicing in, while he was in prison. And so the joy that the world shows and the, and the joy that as Christians we can experience are two different things. You know, uh, happiness is different than joys, right? Happiness is based on happenings. Joy is something deeper, much deeper. It doesn't, it's not based on happenings. And we have to be careful, I speak for myself first, that we don't tie those two together. And so that's why we preach, because we want your joy to be full. I want my joy to be full, because you're going to hold me accountable. And we hold each other accountable and encourage each other. Verse 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him. Now he goes on to the message. And declare unto you that God is light and there is no darkness. Sorry, and in him there is no darkness at all. You know, God is light. We're very familiar with that. God is light. What is more powerful, darkness or light? Well, light, obviously. When you walk into a dark room and your house is, uh, when your house is dark, you come back from church or from wherever you're coming back from, it's nighttime, and you turn, on the, you, you turn on the lights, or you open the, yeah, you turn on the lights, what happens? Well, light just floods the room. Now, if you're in a hallway, and you go in your bedroom, and your bedroom's dark, and you open up your bedroom door, and you have lights in the hallway, does darkness come out? No, light just goes in. Light is just the aptness, uh, um, absence, sorry, darkness is just the absence of light. And so God is light. 
God is light. And again, that was a very simple analogy, a very, very, very simple analogy. But the bigger picture I would see is we see in this world, when the world tries to remove the light, God is light, right? When the world tries to remove the light, we see darkness creep in. Morals, people are sinning. They don't even care anymore. All kinds of things are, bills are being passed in government. And uh, people have no conscience. Their conscience is seared. And that's because we have shut the lights. Now, you can never shut God. And, and I've said this on Thursday, actually, in our church. We say, you know, we've heard this. We've taken God out of schools. We've taken God. And that's why there's all the, You can't take God out of anything. God removes himself or stays silent. And he allows the man to expose what he's really of in his nature, sin nature, and see how far a man can go. And so, John, the same writer here, in John 3.18 says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Light has come into this world. But men love darkness rather than, rather than light because their deeds are evil. You see, in the darkness, mold grows. In the darkness, people sin. Everyone here knows their own little struggles when no one's watching. But if there was a light and if there was, everything was always exposed, we'd probably be a lot more careful of how we, we act and how, what we say. But the funniest thing, it's not even funny, is that God sees everything. Who cares? if our fellow brother or sister sees. God sees everything. <clears throat> John 8, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to him, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he goes on to now in verse 6, says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie in the truth and do not say the truth. You see, this is very important. Um, because... Jesus Christ says, you will know them by their fruits. I use the analogy with people at work, my customers that I talk to, when they say, oh, you know, I know this Christian did this, and I know these Christians, oh, look, at what about this Christian, and you know, what, you know whatever. I, say, I said to them, at the end of the day, you'll know them by their fruits. I have an old Chevy pickup truck. I could put a Mercedes symbol on it. I could put, spend thousands of dollars in LED lights and wrapping and everything, you know, the, the wrap that you put on the cars, and it could say Mercedes all over it. You can spend all the money you want. It's still a, it's still a Chevy. It's what in, what's inside that counts, not what just people say. It's, it's how they live. What comes, out, what comes out of their life? How are they walking? And that's why this warning here is to us as believers, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. Now, it's not only, it's a reminder for believers, but also remember the context. There were those that say they could sin. Remember they were saying that, that you know, they, they can sin and they could still be, they, they call themselves Christians because the soul and, and the flesh or the, the spirit and the flesh are, are different things. And he's saying, listen, this is how you're going to call someone out. If they're walking in darkness, if someone is constantly living a habitual life of sin, habitually living this life of sin, most likely... He's never been born again. He's not a new creature in Christ. He's never been regenerated. And that's why this, is, this, this book is also known as a mark of a Christian, the marks of a Christian. Is there victory in our life?
this next chapter says, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. I mean, look at this is saying even about hating our brother. He said, you're walking in darkness. And he does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think that same chapter says, how can we say we love God who we don't see, but we have a hard time with our brother or sister who we do see. We're going to spend eternity with them. And sometimes we can't sit in the same bench or we can't see him or whatever it is. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now here is this walking again. This walking is this habitual lifestyle of walking. It's this, what it, when someone walks, they're not standing, they're walking, they're moving. It's continual. You're continual. You're walking. You're walking in the light. There will be, and he gives some clues here, really important clues, I think, which is very important. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't sin. As one brother prayed at our church, we're not sinless, but we sin less. And so the idea here is that our life should demonstrate. The Bible says, I think in Matthew 5, be lights of the world. Be light. We should be a light in the world. We should all be lights in the world. We should be pointed to Christ. And that should be our walk. That's how the world will know if we are Christ and if we really truly... Uh, believe and say who we are. Galatians 5 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. There's the fruits that are manifested or the, the works of the flesh, but there are fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. We say fruits, we like that, but we're like, okay, I got that one, I don't got that one. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit produces fruit and this is what it is. And that is what should be coming out of my life. But the fact of the matter is we're still in the flesh. We're still in the flesh. And John talks about this in chapter 5. He says, verse five, um, chapter 5, I believe, verse 17 or 18, all unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Serbian doesn't matter. Because you would hear in Serbian language or in the English language, we use these little softer words for sin. Shortcoming or boo-boo or, you know, I missed the mark. No, you sinned. Because God's standard is so high, I am not going to make it that it's not. We've sinned against God and it's sin. Jesus raised the standard. Remember to the, to the Pharisees, he says, even if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you've committed murder. We're not going to downplay sin. Anger, sin. Lying, sin. Uh, impatient, it could lead to sin. You, you, you know, there's this righteous anger, sure, of course, uh, Jesus had this righteous anger, but we're not, we're not Christ in that sense. We lose our cool sometimes, whether it's through our kids whether it's twisting the truth a little bit. But there's a remedy here, and there's, a, there's, a, there's this encouragement. He says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, we are to be new creatures. We can't be walking in darkness. We can't be walking in darkness. We are to be new creatures. Uh, Romans 6 talks about that, of who we yield our members, servants to, to him you will obey. Who is your master? Is it God or is it the enemy? And, and our life will portray who that is. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, the new has come. There should be a change in a person's life once he has been regenerated. 
And I would say that change is more evident as we grow spiritually. Let's, let's call a spade a spade. It is what it is. We cannot expect a, a Paul experience, maybe in some ways, but that is not always the case where somebody is completely changed. Positionally, he has changed. He is one with Christ. But there are maybe some bad habits that he, he, he realized that, that he slips up sometimes. Maybe it's words that he slipped up. He's like, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. There, he sinned. Does that mean now he has not been saved? No. It's the sanctification. It's this reminder that he is in the flesh and he's going to be, or she, will be wrestling. Maybe it's lust. You're going to be wrestling with the flesh. But don't give in. We are new creatures in Christ and there should be something different about us. And I think that is a turnoff, I think, again, that, that if there are those that believe that, you know, we could just be called Christians and there's no change in our life, I think that's what turns off a lot of people in the world. There's nothing different. What's the difference? Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, all unrighteousness is sin. And I think um, this is a very, very, very important, um, not because I think, but, but because it's in the Bible, all unrighteousness is, is sin. You see, the Pharisees had a hard time with this. You know, this is where you get this pharisaical attitude almost, where we think that we don't sin. We use those small words, the soft words. They didn't want to be called out as sinners. And in Matthew 23, Jesus calls them out. Who did Jesus have the hardest time with? With those that did not want, want to realize where they stood. Now, one can say, yeah, but Mikey, that's prior to their conversion. Of course, I agree. But even still, in their prior to their conversion, they did not want to acknowledge that they sinned. That's why, I, again, in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed is the poor in spirit. When we realize that, that my friend outside the fold of Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner, there's nothing that you can offer to God except to repent, the Bible says in Romans that um, the goodness of God leads us to repentance and that faith is a gift of God. That faith, that is also a gift from the Lord and we repent and we have this godly sorrow and we turn to God. That he changes our life. That he changes our life. In verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But I believe this is talking to Christians as well. Because the fact of the matter is we know that we still do sin. This is not a license to sin. This is not a way to abuse grace. He says here in verse 9, very, very important. I think this is very important. If we don't acknowledge our sin, then how do you confess? How do you repent if you can't acknowledge you have sinned? says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a mark of a Christian. One that realizes that he has failed or she has failed. And understand that we're not perfect. And understand that, that yes, God sees us as saints. Paul wrote two letters. He calls them saints. He doesn't call them sinners. We positionally are we, 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 have, we have switched positions in the sense that we have, Christ has taken on our sin and became sin for us, and we have taken on Christ's righteousness. But we're still in the flesh. We have not received our glorified bodies yet. And that's why in Romans, I believe, 8, it talks about even the creation is groaning. 
And our bodies are groaning too for our glorified bodies where we're not tempted anymore. We're not struggling with our struggles anymore. And I think we set ourselves up for failure if we try to think that we're going to be perfect. We strive. There's daily sanctification. And I know I went off a little bit. That's why I kind of lost my focus. And I remember I think this is where I was going to go is there's daily sanctification. And that's why you will see someone who grows. And that's why I mentioned Paul. It's not always as, you know, Paul's life was completely changed on the road to Damascus. But I'm sure he grew as well. I'm sure there was growth there as well. And in a believer's life, you see a seasoned believer where I look at my own life. Here, not that you use your own personal life to, to uh, interpret scripture, but I can see in my own life certain things where I was like, oh, well, you know, it's like now it's like, no. No, it's like that, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. And for everyone, it's something different. And so there should be growth, and, and we strive for that, and we're setting ourselves apart, um, sanctifying, and going through sanctification on a regular basis. But if we don't understand that we, 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 that we do sin as Christians, what is there to repent of? What is there to confess then? And why are we even setting ourselves apart if we feel or we think that we have somehow attained perfection? And here's a beautiful part again. That is a mark of a Christian, one that is willing to, to show humility and humble himself or humble herself and confess. James says, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. It's our struggles. And it's to, it is so we can be kept accountable. It is so people can pray over us or pray for us, encourage us. And maybe in our circles, we're always scared what people think. I know that's the way I was brought up. Oh, don't, don't, what are people going to think? My kids say that to me all the time. Like, You're always worried what people are going to think. I'm like, man, I'm like, I can't believe I'm, gonna, I'm like my dad now in that sense. But I, I think I'm not to that degree. And so um, there's a bigger picture. Obviously, if someone's struggling with things, we're going to be careful what we share because that can lead them to stumble as well or to, can lead them to maybe excuse their own struggle. Um, so we are to be careful who we share our struggles with, but we are to keep each other accountable. That is the point of, of a church as well, uh, that we would grow in the image of Christ, that we would be imitators of him and follow him. says, because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin, from all our sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, confession is a, a big part of, of this uh, as, as believers. And again, understanding also the context, there were those that did not acknowledge their sin. So I would definitely say that would be a, a big reason why he wrote this. But I think it is twofold. And I think sometimes we're hard on ourselves. I know I struggled with condemnation a lot. And that can cripple you. Condemnation. Because you feel that you're never good enough. Well, here's the news. We never are good enough. If we were, then Jesus didn't have to die. We're never good enough. And so the enemy loves to use condemnation. That's what he does. He, the Bible says in Revelation, I think 12, he says that he stands before God day and night accusing him of the saints. And then we hear that he is going to be cast out. He will not be able to do that anymore. And, and, and yet in the second chapter, it says, my little children of First John, my little children, he continues here, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, there's this, this, this court setting. We have the advocate. We have Jesus Christ is on the right-hand side of the Father, praying on our behalf, 
advocate in, in, in Serbian is advokat, is like lawyer, and that's actually translation, it's like an attorney, someone speaking on your behalf. And yet on, you have the prosecutor. Who's the prosecutor? Satan. God, this is your child? Look what he or she has done. Look at, and then they, he likes to, to, to discourage. And then we can't move forward. And we think, are we, are we saved? Or, or can I even surrender my life to Christ if you're not saved? Because I'm not good enough. The message here was for encouragement. And I hope that this message goes out today for an encouragement. For those that have not surrendered their life, that you would acknowledge your life, that you would acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a savior, that you would repent of your sin and turn to him in, in faith, knowing that he has supplied everything you need to be saved, his blood on the cross, his resurrection. And But for those of us who are saved, for those of us who are going through sanctification, who are going perhaps through struggles, to acknowledge that and confess that. We know Psalm 51, David, if we looked at the life of Saul, and we look at the life of David, and in our circles we ask, who, create, who did the, the greater sin? We would say, David orchestrated a murder, committed adultery, and many other things. And Saul was disobedient, and, and later on his life went to see, I guess, witches or medians. And, but Saul was disobedient. Yet David, after doing all those things in Psalm 51, read a beautiful prayer of confession, of asking the Lord for forgiveness, a heart that was broken. And in, in, in Psalm 51, verse 17, 18, I believe it is, where it talks about, um, you know, it says, God says, I, if I... I desire not bulls and all these sacrifices. He says, but a broken and contrite heart, and a contrite heart, God will not refuse. Those are the sacrifices God wants, is a broken heart. And I hope and pray that that would be our encouragement, that we would not allow pride to set in, that we would not allow um, uh, um, condemnation to set in, where it's the flip side of that, where we just can't move forward, but that we would confess and move forward. And again, for the young ones here, when they question, did God really exist, you can always say there were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses to his account. And this is what, in, the, in, in, in court today, an eyewitness account is huge. I mean, one eyewitness, two eyewitnesses, it's a done deal. But when there, I think it says in Acts, in Acts or end of John, where it says over 500 saw Christ resurrect. 500 witnesses saw Christ resurrect. He existed, he was in the flesh, and yet he was, he was God. And he died for you and for me because he loves us. Amen. I want to thank you, Brother Mikey, for serving us and for everyone who's uh, managed to come here for this afternoon service as well. As we were looking over these short verses from this brief but very powerful epistle, something stood out to me, and I'd like to just reread it, see if you catch this. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's interesting to see, as the Apostle John wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he didn't say, and if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Christ. That would seem to be the opposite of what he just finished saying about walking in darkness. But he pulls us in another direction, and he shows us that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That makes me think. 
Well, if that's the result of walking in the light, then when we do not seek for fellowship with one another, are we walking in darkness? We need each other, brothers and sisters. We need others to point out things about ourselves. We need others to encourage us when we're down. We need to encourage other people when they're down. All of those things are meant to be in the fellowship. And when we walk in the light, we have all of that. When we walk in darkness, we suffer alone. May the Lord grant us the ability, the humility perhaps is the better way to say it, the humility to acknowledge where we walk in darkness, to seek the light and to walk in the light, and then also to fellowship with one another and then add to that fellowship. We are to be witnesses, as it was for the apostles, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so it should be also, those that are closest first. Then from there, a little further afield, maybe a little bit further than still, until all that are to be saved should hear the truth. That was our Lord's vision for his church, for his body. May we continue to do that until he returns. We pray these things now in Jesus' uh, name and in, his, in, his, in the fellowship of, of the light, that as we would do these things, that we would be examples to a, a world that still is in darkness. You know, the earth, this current time, is a, is a place of twilight, not yet in the full light of Jesus Christ, but not fully in the darkness of Satan. It's a time of choice a moment of opportunity, a window of time. And as you know, when the sun starts dropping in the west, the shadows lengthen quickly. We don't know how much time is given to each one of us. So we need to be careful with what we've been given and to seek the light. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what we've heard and may he dismiss us now with his blessing. We'll have area sing tonight at 7 p.m., but we will have dinner here in church for whoever would like to stay and uh, probably somewhere around 5 o'clock. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.